0: Well, I had a, an interesting opportunity last week to, to live out the last series of messages which was submitting to the authorities over us. I actually was summoned to jury duty and got the summons in the mail. And for me personally, doing jury duty is about as much fun as standing in the DMV line or... Um, let's see, what else is it fun? Like, like going to the dentist, although that probably is a bit of a stretch. For me, it's kind of a waste of time because the last times, the times I have been there and I have gotten up on the panel, as soon as they find out what I do, your occupation there, bye-bye, see you later. Uh, for some reason, they don't like pastors to sit on those particular panels. Well, anyway, this last Wednesday, I showed up, 7.45, and uh, it took them seven and a half hours to finally figure out who their 12 were going to be. There were 40 or 50 of us gathered there for that particular narrowing down for 12 people as I said I feel like oftentimes it's a waste of time yet at the same time I believe there are no such thing as accidents God had me there for a reason but one of the interesting things that happened in that jury duty and actually it was during the orientation prior to the selection process was the lady who was giving the orientation told us about a scam that's going on she said that apparently someone is calling around to people in Solano County saying that you missed jury duty You miss jury duty, it's failure to appear, which you can't actually go to jail. Now, I don't know if they'd actually put you in jail for failing to appear in court, but someone's calling around people in Solano County saying you failed to appear in court. But we can take care of it over the phone, the fines and so forth, if you'll just give me your Social Security number and your credit card number. And apparently, people who were fearful of potential, well, punitive uh, consequences, are giving out their social security number and their credit card numbers and they're getting scammed. Well, the reason, so by the way, if someone calls you and says, you missed jury duty, just give us your credit card number, you need to say no. But it's interesting, the reason she warned us of the scam is so that we would understand the scam so that we could defend ourselves against the scam and not get ripped off. And that is true in not only the physical life, in which we live and not allowing people to defraud us, but it's true also, perhaps even more true, in the spiritual life. That is, part of defending oneself spiritually in life is understanding the tricks, the tactics, and the scams and the the strategies of the evil one that he uses to deceive us, to compromise us, to trick us. There's an interesting verse found in Second Corinthians 2, and I'll just read it for you. But it's one that is stuck in my mind in which Paul says this. He says, If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I have forgiven, if there is anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. And here's the key. In order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. That is for Paul part of not allowing Satan and Satan is not a mythical figure he is according to the scriptures a very real very evil and very powerful enemy that part of not allowing him to outwit us is to be aware of his schemes as Paul was keenly aware of the strategies of the evil one and not only him but he says we are not aware in other words the early church had some idea as to the schemes and the strategies and the tactics that the evil one uses to seduce us, to trick us, to scam us. And that's an important thing not only for Paul and for the first century church, but I think an important thing for us to understand the strategies of the evil one in bringing down the church and corrupting your life. That's what compelled C.S. Lewis to write the book Screwtape Letters, which is this fictional book about how a demon, a younger demon, gets the counsel of an older demon as to how to bring down Christians. C.S. Lewis wrote that to equip us to understand how demons work to bring us down. It's what compelled Philip Brooks to write precious remedies against Satan's devices so that in understanding them, we might defend ourselves against them. I mean, To put it in other words, if you simply sail through life, skipping naively, thinking no one's out there to get you, then eventually you're going to get chewed up and spit out. And you're going to find yourself beached on the rocks of sin, wondering, what happened to me? To which a voice is going to say, you were an ignoramus. You were a moron, not understanding that someone's out there to get you. Now, it might sound a bit severe to say you're a moron, but if indeed we have no clue as to what the evil one's doing to bring us down, then we are moronic when Paul says we are not unaware of what He does to bring us down. Now one of his strategies that he uses to bring down God's people, bring down marriages and so forth, is the strategy of dividing and conquering. You look at what he did from the very beginning, one of his strategies is to create fissures and cracks and rifts amongst God's people, and then to place these wedges in between them and pry them apart. That's one of his strategies. You find it at the very beginning when he put a wedge between Eve, our first mother, and the Creator, a wedge of doubt. And he said, did the Lord really say? And out of that doubt separated Creator from Creature not only creator from creature but then you see there's a separation between husband and wife in that same chapter genesis chapter 3 and there's also this division or separation now between mankind and creation itself as now the ground produces thorns and thistles it doesn't cooperate with us so his way is to divide create division between creator and creature and creature to creature and creature to creation his way is to divide people and one of the powerful tools by which he he separates and divides God's people is the wedge of pride. He uses that. He uses doubt. He uses pride. Which we have that instinctive, innate stain of me first. He just simply grabs onto that and uses it to His advantage to bring us down and to divide His church. When we come here to the First Corinthians, A church that is in danger of being ravaged by the evil one. That is, we find these fissures, these rifts, these these fault lines forming in the church to which Paul addresses this particular book. Understand, for those of you who might not have a lot of background in the Scripture, this 1 Corinthians is a letter that Paul wrote to a church that was in the ancient city of Corinth about 30 miles from Athens, it was a church in a culture that was very um, fixated on human wisdom and philosophy, which plays in large part into this particular book. It's a church that he himself planted, he prayed for constantly, he he had tears over, and he loved deeply. But while he was away, these fault lines were beginning to form in the church Fragmentation. The evil one was getting his foot in there and beginning to pry apart his people, and what he was using to do that was this competitive, man-centered groups of people who were who were worshiping particular uh, celebrities, Christian celebrities like Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or even Jesus himself. You, You read it in the words here, where he's some of them in the church are, are saying, "Well, I," and the "I" is emphatic. I am of Paul. I follow Paul. The great theologian, the great church planter, the great missionary. I follow Paul. Whereas others were saying, "Well, I follow Apollos," who is the according to Acts, who is a Alexandrian-born Jew, Alexandria being the center of learning in ancient times, a man who is by Acts definition and description a man who's very learned in the scriptures and probably extremely eloquent. So some were saying, well, I'm of Apollos, the brilliant Apollos. And still others were saying, well, I'm of Cephas. Cephas is just another name for the Apostle Peter. The one to whom Jesus said, your name shall be Peter, and upon this rock I shall build My church. You know, the rock who's Peter. So you can hear them chanting the different names, these, these different personalities, these different people that God had used like Paul and Apollos and Cephas. And then, of course, there was a really spiritual group who got the answer right, but had this elitist spirit, well, will we follow Christ? That there were these cheer squads in the church that were chanting the names of their particular idol that they worshipped. And it was creating these rifts within the church. Now, I have to say that there probably was a little part of Paul that was flattered by the fact that there were people going, Paul, Paul, he's our man. If he can't do it, nobody can. And as flattering as that may have been, Paul understood that behind that was the sinister face of someone who was trying to crush the church. And so he's, 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 he's dealing with this issue, this, this problem that has arisen in the church of this celebrity worship. And behind it, behind this gravitation to leaders in the church, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, and I follow um, Cephas, is nothing less than pride. You find embedded into the chapters, first four chapters of Corinthians, you find this current of pride that keeps emerging in different ways, shapes, and forms, which is why we're spending a few weeks in these chapters. So that, for example, after this little section, Paul goes on to say that God loves to use the foolish and the weak and the lowly to confound the wise and the strong and the lofty. Why? The point, verse 29 so that no one may boast before him, that is, before God. That's the concern. God does things in a reverse way, loves to confound the wisdom of the world, human wisdom, with foolishness so that no one can boast and say, see, we figured it out. Chapter 2 goes at great length, Paul goes to great length to say and talk about the fact that human reason is a bankrupt means to know the mind of God. You can't. The best of human philosophy is like trying with our human hands to grasp the planet of Mars from Earth. We just can't do it. The best that human minds can do can't grasp the mind of God. It takes God's Spirit illuminating it to us. That is a humbling message. Or chapter 3 goes on to say, listen, I just planned Apollos Waters But in the end, it's all about God. God's the one who brings the growth and the increase. In other words, it's not about us. And He brings it to its final point in chapter 3, verse 21. And He says, So then, no more boasting about men. Stop making it about men. And then reiterates Himself once again in chapter 4, verse 6, in the middle when He says, Then you will not take pride in one man against another. There's something in us, in all of us, have a propensity to do this. When one attaches himself or identifies himself with a celebrity or someone who's smart or someone who is well respected, it gives us an edge over others. It makes us feel a little bit more important, a, a little bit more worth. And it still happens to this day. There are still people who gravitate to following men. And as a way of satisfying and a way of allowing their pride to be gratified. In, in my growing up years, in my home church, there was this group of people cloistered around this man whose name was Bill Gothard. You would have thought that he never sinned. And anyone who was not a part of this group, and by the way, his teachings did help a lot of people, were considered the others in the church. There were others who were these ardent followers of John MacArthur, read all his books and held all of his positions. You can still hear the names of great theologians being chanted by sections of people in the church. Calvin, Calvin, he's our man. Let's give him a great big hand. Or Luther, his name is Luther, and he is super. He's a real trooper. That's why he did the Reformation. Now, let me just say that. I have personally benefited greatly from reading such men. And I would encourage God's people to read deeply from, from these men. God has given them to us for a reason. Paul wrote scripture for us. And Apollos helped the people in the first century. And so with Calvin and Luther and others. But there's something that easily happens when a person transitions from being a learner, a humble learner. To being a groupie, and it becomes intrinsically divisive in the church. I'm part of this group, and I'm part of this group, and then these fault lines begin to emerge in the church. And it can happen on on a number of different lines. This kind of partisan spirit that can breed itself in the church. It can happen not only because of the influence of leaders and this natural gravitation of pride to go to someone that's well-respected and be identified with them. It can also happen by holding to those non-essential doctrines in a way that makes you feel like somehow you're better than the other person. You can hear it in the voice of some saying, well, my view of the end is that it will be an amillennial entry into the eternal state, whereas someone else would say, well, I believe in the historic pre-mill position. And there's this sense of, well, I got it down and you don't. Now to be sure, let me just say that non-essential doctrines are necessary and you should have convictions. But not at the expense of the church. And not at the expense of the unity of the church. A sense of humility has to be carried. That becomes a breeding ground for pride and arrogance. Not only with that, but in terms of methods. Oftentimes we grow proud and there are fracture points in the church because people disagree on methodology of things. Like, for example, how to raise children. This has been one that's fractured the church in different ways. It may not have caused the church split, but you can sense the tension between different groups of people. I know, in my again, drawing back to my particular upbringing, there were those of us who attended the public school and our parents said, well, you're going to go to public school. I was one of those people. And we were considered in my particular little Christian sphere the worldly ones. Then there were the ones, the parents who said, well, I believe my children should go to Christian school. And they sent them to Christian school. And they knew, in our context, they knew more about the Bible than Jesus did. At least that's what we were made to feel. And then there were the others who were homeschooled. There was a conviction of the parents that homeschooling is the best, and they were usually the brightest and most intelligent and well-educated of the bunch. Now, to be sure, you should have convictions about how to raise your children. But not at the expense of the family. That is, it shouldn't be an issue of division, much less something one takes pride over. Again, these things are all good in and of themselves, but they are nesting grounds, breeding grounds for pride and fracture points in the church. History can also serve as a fracture point. You have people in the church who say, well, I've been here 20 years, therefore I have a greater ownership of the church than you who've been here one year. So until you've been here for a while, why don't you just stay quiet? And there's a sense of pride that comes with time and history. There's a good thing about being in a place for a long period of time and having history, but not at the expense of the church. And certainly should not give one a sense of pride or arrogance as if somehow 20 years in a church makes it better than, makes you better than only being here two weeks. I'm part of the same family, for crying out loud. In its eternal family, that goes all the way back to the beginning. It even gets down to the individual. And again, this is the problem that Paul is addressing. And then he's going to give us a solution. In that 2 Corinthians chapter 2 text, I think it's interesting that there was a a man in a church who blew it big time. We're talking about a big moral scandal. Paul wrote about it in the first letter to the Corinthians. That is, there was this son who slept with his father's wife now I don't know how that works but it was a deplorable immoral sin and Paul basically said in the first letter listen this guy needs to be taken care of he needs to repent of this or he needs to be shown the door of the church but apparently this young man repented of his sin and so Paul in the second letter in that chapter 2 verse 10 says listen he needs to be forgiven That is, whatever fracture point there was because of his sin, now that he has repented, needs to be welded shut in order that Satan will not outwit us because we're not unaware of his schemes. In other words, even the fractures caused by offenses in the body need to be welded shut. So it's the problem of this pride-driven partisanship. And in this particular church, it's surrounded leadership but it can be leadership it can be doctrinal distinctives it can be methods it can be offenses in the church these fracture points and I think it's interesting just in terms of urgency and priority that if the order in which Paul addresses the problems in this church and there were problems in the church the early church had problems too it would seem to me that he placed a greater priority on the relational harmony of the church that he did about ironing out their distorted doctrines of the resurrection, which he doesn't deal with until chapter 15. In other words, in Paul's mind, when he was thinking of this church that he planted, he prayed for, and he loved, the first thing, the biggest burden for him was the fact that it was being fractured. It wasn't first and foremost that they had a messed up doctrine of the resurrection which tells me in Paul's mind he places a great value a great emphasis and great urgency on the unification harmony and loving relationships in the body that's how important it was to him and should be to us and yet sometimes We're more concerned about the spots on the carpet or the hole in the wall at the church than we are about the fracture that took place between brother and brother or brother and sister or between this group and that group. For him, it was the first problem he addressed. But he does offer a solution. And actually, the rest of the book is a solution to this problem. But it begins here in verse 10. He makes a plea, and this is the solution. This plea that kind of comes in two parts. What they're to do and why they're to do it. He appeals to them. He says, I appeal to you, brothers. And he uses brothers again. When Paul thinks about the church, he doesn't think of a stale, generic, organizational institution which many think of the church. Or that's what comes to many people's minds today when they think of church. Is a cold, stale, organizational institution. Paul doesn't think of the church that way. He thinks of it as his family, which is why he says, I appeal to you, brothers. You're my family. I appeal to you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you, not some of you, but all of you agree with one another so that there may be no divisions, not some divisions, but no divisions whatsoever among you. And that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. He puts it in three different forms. Agree with one another, all of you. Let no divisions be among you. And may you be perfectly united in mind and thought. And before I tell you what I think he means, let me tell you what he does not mean. When he says that you need to be united in mind and thought. He's not saying to us that all of us have to have the exact same opinion about everything. That flies in the face of things that he says elsewhere, like in Romans chapter 14 where people are disagreeing about what he calls debatable matters. Some people think that you should be able to eat meat, other people think you shouldn't. Some people think you should be able to drink this, and other people think you shouldn't. Some people think you should celebrate this as a holy day, other people say you shouldn't. And Paul basically says, listen, you each need to be convinced in your own minds. In other words, you don't have to have the same opinion. So he's not saying here, when he says you need to agree perfectly in thought and mind, he's not saying that we have to agree on opinions. Nor is he saying that we can't engage in lively and helpful debate and dialogue about issues which is a healthy thing in my mind, provided that it comes from a disposition of humble love, that we actually are seeking the good of other people and dialoguing and even debating about how to do things or methods, like how do we raise our children. It's good as long as it's done from an attitude of, of humble love. So it's, he's not saying that we can't dialogue and even debate. And he's certainly not saying that we're gonna going to weld together every fracture point with every single person in the church. He tells the Ephesians, for example, in in Acts, he tells them that there are people who look like sheep who are wolves on the inside. And their whole purpose is to divide the church. And chances are if you happen to meet a wolf in sheep's clothing, you're not going to be able to weld together that fracture point. I think Paul would basically say, listen, either that wolf in sheep's clothing needs to repent and become a real sheep, or he needs to be shown the door. That is, there isn't a place for wolves and sheep's clothing in the body because the unity of the body is so important for Paul. He'd say, show them the door. So he's not saying, when, when he says that we're to perfectly agree in mind and thought, he's not saying we have to share every same opinion. He's not saying that we're going to have um, peace with absolutely every individual in the church. And he's not saying we can't dialogue about issues upon which we disagree. Let me tell you what I think he is saying. When he says that you ought to perfectly have the same mind and thought and agree with one another, he's saying you need to agree that the unity, loving unity of the body is something that all of us value. All of us are going to commit ourselves to the loving and humble unity of the body. It's like a married couple who, who says, you know what? Divorce is not going to be in our vocabulary. And we have made vows to each other. And we are both on the same page, and the same page is this, that we're going to commit to each other to the very end. We're not going to give up when it gets hard. When when differences of opinion come between us, when we argue, we're going to work through it because our thought, our same page thinking is that we don't give up. That is, I think, what he means is that the people in the body, in Corinth, he's saying, You all need to collectively be committed to the humble, loving relationships and unity of the body. If everybody's not on the same page, it doesn't work. If there's a rift between me and another, or one group and another group, if both aren't mutually committed to welding the cracks shut, it's not going to happen. You know, it takes two. So have the same mind and same thought about how important the unity of the body is, and that you're going to struggle and you're going to work to welding the cracks. And if there are relational tears in the fabric, we are going to sew them back up. That's, that's his plea. Weld the cracks. Sew the torn edges. Don't allow the evil one to exploit, stick his wedges in of pride and allow it to pry apart the body of Christ. That's his plea. It's his plea to us. Every one of us. Whether it's groups or individuals. That's how important the unity of body is to Paul. And how important it ought to be to us. Every one of us. That is having the same mind. I'm going to be committed to my brothers and my family. And if there's a crack, I'm going to weld it shut. By the grace of God, I'm going to weld it shut. And I'm going to work to make it happen. Just like I work in my marriage. To weld cracks when they form. But then the second part of his plea is he tells us why. Why? Paul's just not being politically correct. He's not saying, why can't everybody just get along? I'm so sick and tired of hearing that. Why can't everybody just get along? Because people don't get along. That's why. Because people are sinners. That's why. So why? Why can Paul say, hey, why don't you all get along? <laughs> that is how, how can he say, be united in your mind and thought about the unity of, of, of the body of Christ? Well, here's why. He poses three questions that are all related to Jesus. It brings right back to the center. The center is always Christ, correct? He asks these three questions. He says, "Is Christ divided?" This is verse 13. "Was Paul crucified for you?" "Were you baptized into the name of Paul?" Question number 1. "Is Christ divided?" in light of their fragmentation of this Corinthian church? Is Christ divided? And the answer is a resolute and eternal, no, He's not divided. He's a singular unity. He's one in Himself. He is one in purpose. He's one in spirit, mind, and body. He is one with the Father. He is all about oneness. And the church whether you know it or not, is the physical representation of our Christ. So that if the physical representation the church is divided, it stands in stark contradiction to the unity of Christ. But where the church welds those cracks shut, and where it is intolerant of fault lines and human pride, and there is a show of unity, we actually and accurately display what Christ is like to the world. The unity of Christ displayed in the unity of the body. Not only would it just display Christ to the world, but Jesus prayed that in our unity we might actually reveal that the Father sent the Son by our oneness. In other words, what's at stake in the unity of God's family Is the mission itself, is the reputation and the honor of Jesus. It's not just about why don't we all get along, it's about Him. And a compromise of the integrity and the the, the unity of the church is a compromising uh, of mission. Father, may they be one as you and I are one, so that the world may know that you sent me. That's how important it is. It's about Christ. Or question number two, was Paul crucified for you? I bet Paul shuddered when he wrote that. Was I crucified for you? And the answer again is a resolute and eternal, no way, Jose. Paul was not crucified for you. And if he was crucified for you, it wouldn't do anything. The blood of Jesus and Jesus alone atones for the sins of his people. It's the crucifixion of Jesus the perfect One in our place that alone satisfied the just wrath of God. That's it. No one else can do it. It's Jesus and Jesus alone who had the infinite love for His people and the powerful love to His people to die for them and then preserve them to the end. No other human can do that. Paul didn't crucify for you. It's Christ who was crucified for you. If you want to be a groupie, Be a groupie of Christ who gave His life for you. All others are fallen individuals. Men are fallen men. Pastors are fallen men. Every one of them, including myself and Dan Overby in the front row. He knows that about me. I know that about him. The apostles were fallen men. Albeit they wrote infallibly what we have here in Scripture, but they were fallen men. Church fathers are fallen men. John Calvin is a fallen man. Luther is a fallen man. John Piper is a fallen man. Beth Moore is a fallen woman. But mere servants of the almighty, perfect, and powerful Christ. And it's He, it's He that it's all about. Not these other people who are just fallen servants. I think it's helpful too, just in terms of was Paul crucified for you? The whole purpose of the crucifixion: reconciliation, bringing the spirit groups back into one, to undo what the enemy did at the beginning, where he created division between creator and creature, creature creature and creature, and creature and creation. That God Himself, by the blood of Christ the crucifixion, has reconciled to Himself all things. So, we reflect the purpose of the cross in unity. You see, so Paul's grounding his appeal in the fact that Christ is one. He was crucified for you and He in His crucifixion brought everything into one. It is a contradiction to not be one. And then of course, the last question he asks is, were you baptized into Paul's name? And the answer again is a resolute and eternal no. We are not baptized into the name of a denomination. I'm not baptized in the name of a Presbyterian church or a Baptist church or a Lutheran church or a Bible church or an EV free church. We are baptized into one name. And it's the name of Christ. And in that baptism, we are made one. So you see, in the end... He grounds His appeal in the fact that it's all about Jesus. It's about, all about His unity. It's all about the crucifixion. The fact that we were baptized into His name as one people. And what's at stake in the end is the honor, the glory, and even the mission of Christ in the way in which we treat each other. Not only so, but even our, 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 our own self-preservation, our, our defenses. One of my favorite metaphors of Paul that I only recently came to fully understand was that when he tells the, Corinth, or the, excuse me, the Ephesian believers, put on the full armor of God, and I've always individualized that, like every morning I have to get up and put on the armor, until I realize that the armor is a collective thing. Roman soldiers took their shields and shield locked a shield, locked a shield, locked a shield, which became this impenetrable wall of defense and also a wall for offense. It's only as sh- soldier stood by soldier with shields interlocked that the, the the company or the unit was able to withstand the uh, the attacks or able to make headway in the offense. That's that's what's in view and that's what's at stake in the unity of God's people. His brother stands by brother, sister by sister, shield to shield, to shield to shield, connected. Not just the reputation and the honor of Christ, but the defense of God's church. But where there is an opening or a crack, it will be exploited and be used to create fault lines, division, and fracture the church and compromise the very mission that we're called to live out. That's how important it is. So you have this pride-driven partisanship, which then Paul police to us weld the cracks shut. Make sure that shield is locked to shield for the sake of Christ who is one who died to make us one and in whose name we are baptized. And I think is a a relevant truth. I don't know. Perhaps it's out there. A lot of the fault lines in this church are probably covered in dust. They're not covert or obvious. But I think there are some. Most of the fault lines, probably, however, are personal in nature between person and person. And if what he says is true, this is the first problem he addresses in this book, that that's how important unity is, grounds it in Christ himself, then it seems to me the practical outworking of this is to ask the Spirit, where are the fracture points in this church, in my life, in my relationships? Where is it that the shields have come apart? And then, by the grace of God, to work at welding those things back together. Are there fracture lines? Are there people's faces who you don't want to see in the hallway that you're afraid you're going to see in the front entryway? That's probably a pretty good indication there's a fracture point there. needs to be dealt with. Swallow your pride and do something about it. Have the courage to get in and do something about it because that's how important it is. Do something about it. I think most of you know that Dan Overby and I, Pastor Dan, and I have a long history together, Um, high school on, which makes us really good friends. And also, um, well, how should I say this? The people you know are who are your closest friends. They're they're the most fun, but they also can irritate you the most. Just like a husband wife, you know, we have less patience with our wives oftentimes than we do people we don't know that well because we're putting on a good face. But I'll tell you, I know Him well enough that I can see a look on His face and I'll know something's up. And sometimes it could be something totally unrelated to me. But at other times, I know there's something there. And so, either he or I walk into the other's office, shut the door, and we start hashing through it. Sometimes it takes two hours to do. Trying to pull away the layers and say, where's the crack here? Just a couple of months ago, I realized, and he told me, and this goes back a year or two, there's a real painful point in his particular life which me, in my arrogance, I didn't empathize with nor was I patient with, and I hurt him. And it created this little fissure between us. It wasn't a big one, but it took us getting in and figuring it out pulling away the rocks and the rubbish to realize this is where the fracture point is. This is where our shields are coming apart. And that's dangerous at a leadership level. It's dangerous even at a lay level. And to realize, okay, here's the problem. And then in humility to confess, okay, I was wrong. And then to offer forgiveness. And then to pledge and resolve to continue to be close friends and rebuild trust. That's that's what it takes. And I believe there are fracture points in this church. Where are they? And are you going to do something about it or are you going to ignore it? Here's a plea from Paul. Don't allow these fragmentation points to exist. Weld them back together. Sew the loose ends of the fabric back up for the sake of Christ. That's, That's the burden of this particular message. And I hope you will not leave here Without at least resolving in your mind, I need to talk to so and so and I need to weld this back together. Father, I pray that you would grant us in this church the humility to live this out and to feel the burden that Paul felt for the loving and humble unity of the body. And if there are areas that are fracture points, I pray that you would grant us both the grace and the humility and the fortitude and the patience and the perseverance to see that they're mended. Not only in this church, because your church is bigger than this church, but even if there are fracture points in in the larger body of Christ, I pray that we would honor You, honor the crucifixion, honor our baptism, honor the oneness of Christ by engaging in this reconciling work of getting rid of fault lines in Christ's name. Amen.